Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Welcome back to the Alien Minute podcast feed. I'm saying it that way because I want to make sure you realize this is not an episode of Alien Minute. Even though I am John Ingle, the former host of the Alien Minute podcast, I'm actually here to talk to you about a new idea that we're working on, which is to branch off and do something a little different. Um, We're talking about starting a podcast that would be reviving old episodes of Jason Heck and Mitch Bryan's radio show, The DVD Gurus. Now, I think we've talked about this on the show before from time to time, but you probably don't remember. Um, the DVD Gurus is a uh, was a regular segment on the radio show Up to Date, hosted by Steve Kraske here on the local Kansas City Public Radio affiliate, KCUR. Now, Jason and Mitch would regularly go on the show and talk to Steve about movies. Uh, they would talk about different themes in movies. They would talk about different years in film. They would talk about basically whatever they wanted to, and they would take callers. So the show will contain some local Kansas City uh, characters calling in and talking to them about the movies. Honestly, that might be something that we'll leave on the cutting room floor in the future. We just want to see how, what you guys think about it. So we're going to leave the episodes fairly raw. Um, this episode in particular comes from about 2006, I think. It predates Daniel Craig as James Bond. That's right. This episode is about James Bond, but it is before Casino Royale was released. So they'll talk about the anticipation for Casino Royale a little bit, but mainly um, it will be about Sean Connery through uh, Pierce Brosnan era Bond films. So, you know, Mitch is maybe uh, the biggest James Bond fan I know. Jason's also a big James Bond fan. So there's going to be a lot of great talk here. There's going to be clips. There's going to be, again, like I said, call-in discussions. So it's something a little bit different. Uh, We want your feedback. Let us know if you think this is a good idea for a show. We might start a new feed. We might start a new show altogether. So sit back and listen to Jason Heck and Mitch Bryan talk about the James Bond films. Enjoy. Welcome to Up to Date. I'm Kraske, Steve Kraske. And if you were just thinking that I had somehow had morphed into Sean Connery from the James Bond series, I wouldn't blame you a bit. I sounded just like him, didn't I? I've been told that I look a lot like him, too. Well, speaking of Bond, James Bond, today we're going to talk about great spy films, and we're going to focus on the James Bond series, which has become something of a Hollywood institution. Now being filmed is yet another James Bond film, a remake of Casino Royale. Our guides today, Mitch Bryan of Fairway, has written screenplays for top directors like Oliver Stone and Chris Columbus. Mitch, welcome back. 
Thank you, Steve. Nice to have you here. Nice to be here. Jason Heck is our longtime video expert here on UpToDate, who has made total recall of any film ever made an instant uh, way of doing business. Jason? It's it's great to be here. For a minute, I thought you were Neil Connery, <laughs> his his less successful brother. Is, was there one? Uh, yeah, and he was also in a Bond parody film. It's pretty awful. Called uh, Operation Kid Brother. No, I did not know this. Yeah, we're already off to a good start It's great. Here. You'll love it. Yeah. Well, James Bond, gentlemen, Mitch, this series is enduring as almost anything Hollywood has ever put out. This guy has survived the Cold War and the advent of computer technology, not to mention uh, a series of different actors playing James Bond. Why does this franchise linger on and survive as well as it does? Well, the, I guess the easy answer would be the money because it's been very profitable for um, for the producers. But I think that that the films tend to reflect the times when they're made, and I think that there's always something sort of current about the newest James Bond movie. They're dictated not only by the history or the political situation, but also by pop culture and, and frankly, competing with the other movies that are out on the market. And so when films change and styles change, the James Bond movies attempt to keep up. And sometimes they're trendsetters, and other times, as we'll see today, they followed trends. Hmm. And so it's, it, it's, it's very organic and evolving. And Jason, these films have been hugely successful, too, for the most part. They were based on some of the best-selling books of all time, so you had an, an instant, giant, programmed audience for them. And they simply, Eon, every time a film, the, the first three films succeeded, they simply upped the ante and kept making them bigger and bigger and bigger. And they repeated the same formula, but they just made it bigger. And it bigger means more people are going to see it. You know the formula works. So the films are huge successes. Yeah, how many movies are we now talking about that have been made in this series? What's the number? It's an even 20. Casino Royale will be the 21st official James Bond movie. Okay. James Bond was invented by a chap named Ian Fleming. Tell us about him, Mitch. Well, he had a very interesting past. I mean, he was, he was in intelligence, naval intelligence, and uh, was a journalist, and eventually attempted, I think at age 43, to write his first novel. And that novel was Casino Royale, and it took 10 years uh, before Casino Royale, uh, before James Bond sort of made his way to the screen in, in Dr. No. There was a small TV production starring Barry Nelson as Jimmy Bond. Yeah. I mean, really? this yeah. first James Bond was an American. And I think that the interesting thing about this whole, there have been several other Americans that have come very close to playing James Bond. Burt Reynolds twice, which is a terrifying thought. Yeah. Uh, James Brolin actually screen tested and was probably going to be an octopusy. And then, so did and Redford. Then, yeah. Did really? Redford screen tested for Bond as well. Yeah. And, t- and Paul Newman was on the list at one point. <laughs> hmm. And I, maybe it's because the international market is so huge that they figure, well, he's going to be dubbed anyway, so it doesn't matter whether he's an American or English. But, you know, the, the notion of, of, a, of an American James Bond right. is... William Conrad or something. Well, <laughs> it's just awful to think about. Well, and come to find out that Sean Connery was, was not the original first pick for this role, right? It was somebody else whom I don't, I don't know who it was, but... Well, the story I've heard it is that Saltzman cast Connery um, almost... He, he, Connery was coming in t- to read for the part, and Saltzman cast him when he saw him walking because Harry Saltzman, one of the two big producers, along with Albert R. Broccoli, said that Connery walked, quote, like a panther, and he liked how he moved. And Connery was very athletic. Um, but he had... I mean, he's got a Scottish brogue, and that that had uh, almost cost him the job. 
Hmm. Even though James Bond was is is in the books, they say he's Scottish. Right. You know, well, so. and he uh, Connery talked back to the directors and said, "No, no, I'm going I'm to do it this way." And they sort of admired his bravado, I think, when he came and tested. At least that's what I read last night. Hey, man, it worked in Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Why wouldn't it work <laughs> as a secret agent? I mean, and Doctor No was not a big production at the time. You have to think about it. They they were risking their money, but you know, you weren't. You didn't really know a huge franchise was in the works. Doctor No, the success was was gratifying and 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 pretty. It, it was not preordained to be a huge hit, so I don't. It, it know was made for a little under a million dollars, three hundred thousand mm-hmm. pounds, and um, there was even they weren't even sure where they were going to position it as a color picture for the longest time. I mean, there was a big debate over whether or not they were going to film that movie in color, and so. And it's in some sense they sort of stumbled onto this to this franchise, and I think it was it was invigorated certainly um, as the the books became very popular in America, only after they from Russia with Love was on Kennedy's mm-hmm. ten best list because yeah. the first books didn't sell well at all in the states. Does this franchise rank as the longest running Hollywood movie franchise ever? Is, is there anything else that rivals it? Is it what forty something years yeah. now? Forty four years now? Yeah. I mean, nothing else comes close, right? I don't uh, think so. I mean, uh-huh. maybe. I don't know if you can count like all the variants of Sherlock Holmes over, you know, over the years. Mm-hmm. But as far as a continuous, yeah, running franchise, I think yeah, probably the longest. Mitch, how do women feel about these films? What do we know about that? I think it depends on the film. I think some of the movies try very hard to connect with a female audience. Um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which we'll talk about a little later, it was marketed toward a female audience because it had such a strong female lead, um, and. And I think the films over the years have have become more politically correct, and and the good ones are smarter, you know. But there are some that are that are dinosaurs that are just have this sort of ridiculous sexist attitude, and and actually cheapen Fleming because you know I think Fleming hated everybody. I think really. that's your favorite. The man with the golden gun <laughs> is aggressively sexist. Yeah. yeah. What do we know about the remake of Casino Royale, and and when is it coming out? We Jason? know that they just cast a villain about two days ago, yeah. uh, a melancholy Dane. We know that there is no Bond girl, although an announcement is expected this week. And we know that principal photography has in fact started in Prague uh, without a Bond girl. So. Um, and who is j- playing James Bond now? Daniel Craig is playing James That's Bond. Right. The new guy. Yeah. yeah. Blonde Bond. The blonde Bond. Mm-hmm. Although Roger Moore was kind of blonde in the Pseudo faux blonde yeah. a little bit. Also well, kind of old. Is this guy going to work, Mitch? I don't know. He looks like a villain to me. Yeah, he sort of does. He does look evil. He? But maybe I, I would love it if it went back to a Timothy Dalton style portrayal. I would love Bond to be hard, to have edges, to be ruthless when he has to be. Um, although I grew up with Roger Moore as Bond, um, he is not my favorite. He is, you know, he is very quick to rely on gimmicks on pithy one-liners he is like a big flit at a cocktail party and I, I, and, and the series you know found a huge audience with that as, as we'll talk about with Moonraker but um, he is not my favorite I would love for Bond to follow in Brosnan's footsteps and be a little bit harder well, we're going to spin through the Bond series during the hour and talk about each of these films, but there's two big questions that need to be answered before we go too much farther. Which actor played James Bond the best, and which Bond film was absolutely, positively the best Bond film? Mitch, where are you going here? I think that, that Honor Majesty's Secret Service is my personal favorite, but you take points off of it because Connery wasn't in it. And that's the thing. There is no perfect James Bond movie because each one of them has something that you can sort of say, 
didn't quite hit the mark. I mean, in some ways, you know, Goldfinger maybe is the one because it set a certain paradigm or formula. But you can you can find weaknesses in all of them, and that's part of the fun, I think. Of that's why you get hooked into being obsessed with these movies, is because there's 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 no right answer on any of these things. And, and for you, Sean Connery was yeah, he was great. He was the yeah. guy, Jason. I would tie uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which had it had Connery, would have been perfect. Hmm. Honestly, it it is so different from any other Bond film, and it's not because Lazenby is in it. If that had had Connery, far and away, it would have been. Easily the best Bond film. And what number in the series was that one? Number six. 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 Little down uh, the road. I, call, uh, I would also put Thunderball up there, which I'm going to talk about. I think Thunderball is, yeah, is great. A, just a beautiful film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think um, Connery set the stage and certainly and made the character his own. I really like Timothy Dalton's portrayal of James Bond. I think he, he went back to the roots. He read all the books. He knew that coming off of more, he had to do it differently. He had to make it his own. And I really like Dalton's portrayal. So why didn't he last longer than, what, two films, I because think? Because right? License to Kill grossed $34 million in the U.S. in 1989. Yeah. And that was an instant goodbye. An instant and it wasn't his him. fault. I mean, the, the problem is, I think, at that point, this, I, at that, at that point, <laughs> Everybody involved with the Bond films was kind of – they felt – everything felt sort of old and tired and out of place and out of step. And it, and it took, you know, a new James Bond and a new director who wasn't part of the established, you know, team to create something fresh with Goldeneye. And it's been interesting because there's been a different director on every Bond film since then. And now Martin Campbell, who directed Goldeneye, is doing Casino Royale. Well, Mitch, talk about that a little bit because, you know, Jason's right. The series did dip in, in the Timothy Dalton era. How did it revive itself? What was done to sort of spiff it up and make it relevant to today's audiences? I think the fact that 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 they abandoned a lot of the techniques and a lot of the things that they had been doing up to that point, they started with computer-generated imagery. Mm. They took a very different aggressive sort of photographic style the movies suddenly looked moodier and, and, and kind of caught up with, with where movies were at that time. There's something very kind of dinosaurish about those two Timothy Dalton movies in terms of the way that they look. Mm. It's like they just hadn't quite caught up to where cinema was headed. The best way to, to think about that is to compare License to Kill came out the same year that Die Hard did and to see just how old it looks. Yeah. And as, as much charisma as Timothy Dalton has, and really he is very predatory in his looks and his acting in the film, I really like him. But if you compare that film to Die Hard, and it's constantly moving and swooping camera and complex characterization, yeah. you just realize that the series had shot its bolt at that point. We're talking this morning about the James Bond series, and if you have opinions, and I know you do because our phones are all already ringing here, about which actor played James Bond the best and which Bond film was the best, give us a phone call here, 816-235-2888. Again, that's area code 816-235-2888, and our email address is up to date at kcur.org and breaking news this morning on the James Bond front they have picked a new Bond girl uh, Ava Green from the Dreamers she was in Kingdom in Heaven a caller called in with that news this morning so Uh, any reactions there is that a good choice I don't know Jason you're you're groaning Jason Anybody but Denise Richards again. That's fine. You know what? Cast anybody. <laughs> cast cast. Who, Does it really matter? Honestly, cast whoever you want, so long as it's not Denise Richards. You know, anybody but I, her. So I think what's going to be interesting about Casino Royale is is whether or not it's going to return to the to the real James Bond kind of feel. You know, in many of the books, he doesn't get the girl, and clearly hmm. in Casino Royale, you know, in the in the book, 
she kills herself, and and he's devastated by it um, because she it turns out she's a traitor. Are they going to go there with the ending? I don't know. I mean, I hope they do. I I, I spent last summer rereading all the Fleming books. Hmm. It was my summer reading project, and it was just so much fun to see all the things that he was willing to do with James Bond that, that frankly, the movie makers don't have the courage to do. They're so afraid that they're going to, you know, ruin ruin the franchise. And that they're good books? They're, they're great books. Really? I mean, they're dated, but and, and there's a, a really sort of nasty sort of racist thing going on with Fleming and his sort of Everything but England. His snob. He's he's equally snobbish to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're really terrific books. Why why did you reread them? Because I just thought it would be really fun to just read them in the order that they were written. And I hadn't read them since I was in eighth grade, so I thought it would be a, a really fun thing to do over the course of the summer and mm-hmm. really see how they connect. Because he does a lot of referencing back to earlier books, and they're very much kind of a serialized kind of series. You know what's interesting about Casino Royale? M is now the marquee player. Judy Dench is the biggest name in that movie. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, that's true. That's that's pretty fascinating to think. I love that, Judy Dench. I, I just hey, love her. I love Judy she Dench can do too, anything. and I think she makes a great M. I, I think mm-hmm. that was a really great step and a great reinvention in in Goldeneye. But she is all of a sudden the biggest name in the movie. It's like when you see the the um, poster for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and George Lazenby is just right there next to Diana Rigg and hmm. whoever else was in the movie. After that, Connery had been in, you know, seventy two point font above above the title, Sean Connery is James Bond was actually how they marketed. Uh, you only live twice. Sean Connery is italic underlined James Bond, and of course he hated that. He referred to it as being in bondage, and that's why he left the series. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Let's uh, start off on our um, walk down memory lane here with the James Bond series. Mitch, you want to talk about From Russia with Love, and this is the second Bond film, and it was the one of the top grossing films of 1964. That's right, and the book was one of Kennedy's favorites. It's it's sort of seen as the story, uh, as the one in the series that has the very strongest story that's a true spy movie, uh, very few gadgets, doesn't have the magnificent sets and the out-of-this-world kind of fantastical elements that eventually James Bond would, would reach. And it and, and the, I think the clip we're going to listen to is this terrific confrontation between Robert Shaw and Sean Connery, Robert Shaw playing this assassin who's been sent out to kill James Bond, and things aren't looking real good for James Bond at this point in the, in the, in the movie. So Let's listen to the clip from Russia with Love. Red wine with fish. Well, that should have told me something. Get me now the right wines. The other one on your knees. How does it feel, old man? Old man? Is that what you chaps and Smirsh call each other? Smirsh? Of course. Spectre. And it wasn't a Russian show at all. You've been playing us off against each other, haven't you? And it was Spectre who killed the Russian agent in the mosque. You? Mm-hmm. Karam and the other man? Mm-hmm. And Nash? Oh, I don't mind talking. I get a kick out of watching the great James Bond find out what a bloody fool he's been making of himself. That's from Russia with Love. That's Sean Connery playing Bond and the late, great Robert Shaw playing the bad guy in that film. And, Mitch, that's just before they stage uh, that thrilling fight to the death aboard the Orient Express. Absolutely. One of the the great fights in cinema history. And if you want to see a rematch between Robert Shaw and Sean Connery, check out the sword fight in Robin and Marion when they meet again. And it's almost as brutal. 
But again, this has been described as the definitive Bond film, right? In some ways it is. It's yeah. certainly got the strongest story, but it, it was lacking that element of the fantastic that was going to become that thing that was going to really push these films over the edge. The direction by Terrence Young is fantastic, and he would do he did Dr. No, and he would return to the series with Thunderball, and they would always say about Terrence Young that he was James Bond, hmm. that he was so sophisticated and brought this sort of savoir-faire to the, to the proceedings that that was, you know, was unequaled by any other director because of the absolute sort of synchronicity he, he had with, with, with Bond. Let's go to some phone calls here. People who have votes about the best Bond film ever and who played James Bond uh, the best. Uh, Shelley from Miriam, good morning. Hi. Good morning. Um, I think the best one was um, Pierce Brosnan in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. No, that's just my personal favorite. How come? I go, well, for one, I go for the, the more modern ones. Um, I like the old ones that you guys have been discussing, but I think the best ones are these more modern ones. They're using better techniques. They're um, asking more of their actors, more special effects, more CGI, more, more of that sort of thing. But one thing that, that you gentlemen haven't discussed, and, and I know you did allude to the female audience, but um, it, it, the attitude toward the women, the, the Bond girl, yes. is a little bit different from the old films. I think you have to say, okay... Um, here, here's the old James Bond films, and here's the new ones. Okay, which one in each category do you like best? Because th- they are different from each other. Well, and and, and as, as your, your guest had stated, you can pretty much draw the line between the old and the new at the Timothy Dalton films. Well, well Shelley, how were these films for you to watch as a woman? As a woman? Yeah. Um, you're looking uh, not so much at the special effects, but, but his attitude toward women and how, um, you know, how he does what he does with knack and, and ingenuity and intelligence. That's the way I look at it. Now, it's nice to look at the handsome man, okay? <laughs> it, it, it's nice to, to, to see that he's got, you know, savoir faire and everything. But I think, uh, you know, I, I'm more looking for the, uh, uh, you know, something to stimulate the intelligence there. All right. Shelley, thank you for your phone call. Let's go to Bob from Overland Park. Bob, good morning. Hi. How you doing? Well, thanks. Uh, my comment, I, one of the, uh, my favorite movies was uh, uh, an early one, Goldfinger. Uh, I think he represents something that was really diabolical and, and that uh, we could love to hate. He was, he was kind of crazy and he didn't mess around. Right. And another comment I had about just uh, the movies in general is I think one reason why they're so successful is because we need this kind of a hero type that's, that's going to... You know, on a collective level, I guess he's he's saving our ass because it's the whole world. But uh, I think that's one important aspect of it. Okay, Bob, thank you for the phone call. Sure. Let's move on to our second film here, Thunderball, uh, which was one of the top-grossing films of 1965, Jason. Uh, Thunderball was, for me, where everything came together because it had a plot that was, to me, every bit as compelling as from Russia with Love, but all the Bond elements and the Bond style itself, which was pretty much invented by Terrence Young, he comes back for Thunderball. Um, It has, I think, the most compelling plot. It's got two atomic bombs hijacked by just an incredibly sophisticated and capable terrorist organization called Spectre. And Bond has to go to, well, he doesn't have to go. He Actually, his reason for going to the Bahamas is sort of weak. Um, but he does go to the Bahamas, and it's just, it's an incredible film. It's beautiful. It has a Bond girl who, 
whew, would make the Pope kick in a stained glass window. And that was? That was Claudine Auger, who played uh, Miss... Uh, she was 23 when she played Domino in this. Um, it's got a great villain. I think Largo is, is a great villain who has a great gambling scene with Bond. Uh, Goldfinger invented the idea... Well, no, I'm sorry. It took from the books the idea of Bond having a face-off in a game of chance or skill with his main adversary. It had the famous golf match. This has Baccarat at a, uh, at a casino in Nassau. It has a gorgeous hit woman after Bond, and, and it is so lush and beautiful to look at. In Cinemascope. In, in, yeah, the first, yeah, the, the first, first Cinemascope Bond and, film. And John Barry. What does that mean? Uh, it means that the, 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 the visual image is, is longer than it is tall, and it, it used a, a new visual technique, mm. so it, it, there's just more to look at. It's, it's bigger. What's the clip we're going to hear here, Jason? Uh, our clip here is actually all the double O's in Europe. All nine of them have been called in uh, because of an emergency. Of course, Bond suggests that maybe someone has lost a dog. He, he doesn't feel a lot of urgency. But what we get here is Spectre making their demands on the British government. And this is from Thunderball. Well... Now that we're all here, the Prime Minister has asked the Home Secretary to come and represent him here today. The Home Secretary. Uh, Gentlemen, uh, the tape that you are about to hear was received at 10 Downing Street this morning. My dear Prime Minister, two atomic bombs, numbers 456 and 457, which were aboard NATO Flight 759, are now in the possession of Spectre. Unless within the next seven days your government pays to us 100 million pounds sterling in a manner to be designated by us, we shall destroy a major city in England or the United States of America. Please signal your acceptance of our terms by arranging for Big Ben to strike seven times at six tomorrow. You know, Jason, I listen to these clips and it takes me way back. I remember this stuff, you know. This was an incredible scene in this beautiful palatial conference room and a sense of real world urgency. I mean, we have we have a week to either pay up or they're going to incinerate a city and we have no idea where. It's great. You know, just briefly, by this point in the series, Jason, Connery was already weary of playing James Bond. Does it show? Well, to a certain extent, in it does in the next film. You only live twice. But in, mm-hmm. in Thunderball, he was really raring to go. He is so at ease. He inhabits the role beautifully. And there are all sorts of like little touches that he does throughout the movie that kind of let you know that he's really happy playing James Bond still at this point. Okay, we're talking today about the big, uh, the greatest James Bond films ever. Our guides are Mitch Bryan, a screenwriter here in town, and Jason Heck, our longtime video expert here on UpToDate. When we come back, we'll get phone calls from Steve from Kansas City, Missouri, Kelly from Overland Park, and Carla from Richmond, Missouri. I'm Steve Kraske of the Kansas City Star, and you're listening to Up to Date on KCUR. <laughs>
That's the Bond theme from Tomorrow Never Dies, and welcome back to the second half of Up to Date. We're talking today about James Bond and this legendary film series, series perhaps the longest and most successful long-running series in Hollywood history. We're visiting today with Mitch Bryan from Fairway, a screenwriter, and Jason Heck, our longtime video expert here on Up to Date. Let's turn to um, our next film, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mitch. Oh. From 1969, it's funny what the, the caller had mentioned about the Bond girls and that you can draw a line between what are the modern ones and what, what are the old ones. Well, I don't know whether 1969 qualifies you know, in her book as old or, or modern, but clearly this is the Bond movie where the Bond girl could hold her own with James Bond. Uh, Diana Rigg, who had been in the Avengers TV series, plays Tracy. And um, this is the this is the Bond movie where James Bond gets married. Hmm. Uh, it it was um, it was it was really interesting because it had a new a new James Bond, George Lazenby, who was a model who they say got the part because he had one of Connery's old suits and and had an Aston Martin and got his hair cut just right and just walked in with unannounced and said, "I understand you're looking for James Bond." <laughs> and the casting director was apparently on the phone to to Harry Saltzman, one of the producers, and he just apparently said, "You better come over here. I think that guy we were looking for may have just walked in the door." Oh, you're kidding! So he was a model, and uh, the biggest thing he'd done were some chocolate ads. He was from Australia, and he, I think he's really good. And mm. I think that. Um, he got into a pretty heavy-duty row with the producers by the end of the of the process. He showed up at the premiere wearing a beard. Grizzly Adams beard. <laughs> <laughs> he had a big war in the press with Diana Rigg. Uh, no About one, what? Uh, maybe they were together and they broke up and had a big fight, or maybe they just oh. had a big fight. And there's lots of different you know versions of what exactly happened. But he had a really cheeky attitude, really arrogant attitude. Somebody, his casting director... Um, a casting director he worked with said there's a part and you should go talk to them about it and he goes what is it she goes I can't say over the phone and he said oh forget it and he hung up and then he gets called a couple of months later you know and 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 somebody said why do they think I could play James Bond and they said probably your arrogance hmm. and I mean he now he sort of has acknowledged that he he kind of probably a little over blew the top. it, blew yeah. it big time. <laughs> and at this point, Sean Connery had given up on the thing, right? He was he was done with Bond. He said he was done and was never coming back. He would come back after Honor Majesty's Secret Service in Diamonds Are Forever, um, one of the weakest entries in the series. But Connery was back for the for the role. The other thing about Honor Majesty's Secret Service is Peter Hunt, who had been the film editor and second unit director on all the Bond films up to this point, and who in many ways was a, a kindred spirit of Terrence Young, took over the franchise and brought not only this sort of British elegance back into it, but through his editing style and through his desire to create these fights that were unlike any that we'd ever seen before and these action scenes that were really believable, created this amazing dynamic you know, thing with this movie. And you know, it's no mis- You know, in 1868, 67, 68, movies had changed. Bonnie mm-hmm. and Clyde had come out. The Wild Bunch had come out. The level of screen violence had changed. And everybody was worried that James Bond was going to be out of date, you know, passe, old-style 60s stuff as we were moving into the 70s. And so he really made a very special film, uh, had a great new score by John Barry, and... Um, I think it's the best in the series. And a pretty good bad guy, too, Telly Savalas, yeah, I right? mean, it's an odd choice that Telly Savalas is going to play Blofeld, and he plays him like sort of a thug, but he's, t- he's, he's mean, you know? He's Telly Savalas. Tell us what we're going to hear uh, clip-wise here, Mitch. Uh, this, is, uh, this clip has two great things going for it. First, the score by John Barry and the love theme, uh, We Have All the Time in the World, playing in the background. And this is James Bond proposing to Tracy. From On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Tracy, an Asian, she 
shouldn't be concerned with anything but himself. I understand. We just have to go on the way we are. Huh. We'll have to find something else to do. Are you sure, Jane? I love you. I know I'll never find another girl like you. Well, that is a different James Bond, isn't it, Mitch? Yeah. 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 Okay. It's a whole new kind of movie, but boy, it was great. Let's go back to some phone calls here. And Bruce from Overland Park, who want to talk about the John Barry of, uh, music score here. Go ahead, well, John. Well, is, is, is it impossible to overstate the importance of the John Barry music to the success of this franchise? I mean, that music has just become come to define James Bond. And uh, John Barry, just uh, such a genius uh, movie uh, uh, music writer, that uh, I think he defines James Bond a lot. Mitch, do you agree with that? I, I think that all you have to do is watch one of the ones that he didn't score, and there's something there's something missing. And, and even when Connery did his rogue uh, James Bond film, Never Say Never Again, it just wasn't the same to not have that Monty Norman James Bond theme or the John Barry, you know, orchestrations. Jason, you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. there have been a number of garbage scores. Marvin Hamlish, George Martin. George Martin's uh, better than Bill Conti. <laughs> Bill Conti, who per- really came close to derailing what I think was a pretty, well, was an okay Bond film, which was uh, Free Your Eyes Only. Just when Barry isn't there, when he's busy or on another project, it's not the same. There is a majesty. There is a bounce. He he, he fits it all in there. He's, and David Arnold, the guy who's doing the new scores, has a real affinity for John Barry, and, and his underscoring is very similar. There's some beautiful cues that sound like John Barry. They okay. went back to him after they went with a French composer named Eric Serra in GoldenEye, and everybody hated it. They opened mm. with this sort of pop electronic kind of noise on the famous gun barrel sequence with Brosnan and everybody just thought, oh, uck. So they immediately huh. went but to David Arnold who, who kind of revers the series and the music. Let's go back to some phone calls here and Carla from Richmond, Missouri. Good morning, Carla, and Good. thanks for holding on for us. Good morning. I'm glad um, the music was brought up because I, boy, that guy was right on the money. Um, I agree. Her Majesty's Secret Service was, I to me, it was the best one. Uh, Lazenby, although he doesn't have the charisma of Sean Connery, he's my second favorite. I think he is a hunk. I think he's the best-looking <laughs> one, <laughs> hands down. But Sean Connery, you know, personified James Bond. Um, I would have preferred, instead of Pierce Brosnan, an actor by the name of Adrian Paul, who was the Highlander. I thought Do you guys he, know him? Huh? Uh, I, I don't. I, I don't know him by, by name. Huh? Well, he is... A little Sean Connery. He looks like a little junior Sean Connery. Um, he's uh, not as sophisticated, but really macho. Uh, another thing I, I had wanted to bring up: Have you are any of you familiar with um, Sidney Riley, Ace of Spies, the book? I haven't read the book, but I know the series with Sam Neill, and he and Sam Neill actually tested for for James Bond uh, before. Sam Neill, really? Yeah, I think he tested right before they went to Dalton. He they, there's mm-hmm. actual screen test stuff on the DVD. Oh, he but he was a good looking guy back then. He looks yeah. kind of tired now, but I mean he was a hunk back then. But happens to the best of us. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hear you. Uh, but the thing is. Um, that uh, Sidney Riley supposedly was the guy that they based James Bond on, and he is so interesting. 
I sent away a couple years ago and finally read the book, and he is just larger than life. Mm-hmm. You know, he gambled and uh, gambled fortunes away, won and back, was a double agent. Uh, that They say that's why Bond is always a gambler, because mm-hmm. he was kind of modeled after Sidney Riley. Carla, thank you for the good phone call. Glad to have you. Let's move on to our next film here, uh, Live and Let Die from 1973. And this is the film perhaps most memorable for the Paul McCartney title track, Mitch. For the, for the Paul McCartney track and for the fact that this is, you know, James Bond is back and everybody else is black. This is the black exploitation James Bond movie. Talk it up, Mitch. Talk it up. <laughs> I, I love this movie because for a couple of reasons. First, because Roger Moore... Um, it's his first Bond film, and he did step into the role with an amazing kind of ease. He he began to turn the tide, and the Bond movies are going to start to become more comedic than serious. But I like the fact that this movie looked around and said, okay, it's 1973, spies are out of favor, uh, we need to make a hero out of James Bond, but what are we going to do? I mean, is he is he a dinosaur? I mean... And, and so we put him in a situation where he is absolutely out of place, whether that's New Orleans, whether that's in the swamps, whether that's in Harlem, and utilizing the book, Live and Let Die, which was about, you know, a, a, an African-American criminal network. Uh, they throw James Bond right into the middle of it. And does and it ev- work? I think it works. I think everybody makes fun of James Bond like you'll never see again. He really takes it on the chin in terms of insults throughout the movie. Hmm. I mean, yeah. he's being insulted. He's being insulted. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, normally it's Bond with the with the snappy one-liners, but man, he he really. I mean, it's almost like the culture saying, you know, I don't know if we have a place for you, James Bond, here. And and this is and 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 what happened at this point in the series is that that the films began to follow trends rather than set trends. So this follows the black exploitation trend. Uh, the man with the golden gun follows the kung fu trend. That follows the crappy movie trend. Right? Yeah, and the crappy movie trend. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> and and then you know, and then and then Moonraker's following Star Wars. Well, this is Roger Moore's first appearance, debut appearance as James Bond. How was he greeted, and how much publicity buildup was there at the time for Roger Moore, Mitch? Well, he was known for his work uh, in The Saint, and then he had just come off of a big TV series called The The Persuaders with Tony Curtis, and um, so he was you know, relatively well-known. He was, interestingly enough, three years older than Sean Connery. Hmm. Um, and and he took to the role um, and made it his own. He, he played it like Roger Moore. If there was a national poll done right now on who the best James Bond was, would Roger Moore finish second to Sean Connery? Is that sort of the consensus out there? I would bet there? so, simply from a generational point of view. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he made more Bond films than anybody else, and he, he really dominated the role for you know, well over a decade. Okay. Let's listen to a clip from Live and Let Die. What are we going to hear here, Mitch? Well, James Bond uh, was being sent out to be uh, wasted by Mr. Big and has just been rescued by a black CIA agent named Strutter. Okay. Let's listen from To Live and Let Die. Stop it! Now. Strata CIA. Where were you when I didn't need you? It got obvious you weren't coming out front. Not even with that clever disguise you're wearing. Mm-hmm. White face in Harlem. Good thinking, Bond. Let's get out of here. I'm surprised they didn't spot you, too. There's a most remarkable girl back there with a deck of cards. <laughs> I saw those cards on the way up. Spades, James, every one. You were nailed the minute you left 74. There's only supposed to be one man who can pull together that much black muscle in this town. Calls himself Mr. Big. You name the business, they say he has a black concession. 
would a foreign prime minister like Kananga want with an American gangster? The question is, what would Mr. Big want with a two-bit island diplomat? That was from Live and Let Die, the film in which Jane Seymour made her film debut in that film. And we have an email, speaking of Jane Seymour, uh, from a listener saying, Steve, let's change this up a bit. My favorite Bond girls in order. Number five, Jill St. John as Tiffany Case. Number four, Britt Eklund as Mary Goodnight. And where do they get these names? Number three, Barbara Carrera as Fatima Blush, if I'm saying that right. Number two, Sophie Marceau as Electra King. And number one, Famke Jansen as Xenia Anatop. Oh, Famke is certainly my favorite. Is, is that a, a she? And how, oddly, not one of my marriage proposals to her has ever gotten me an answer back. <laughs> Nothing. Even when I mailed her things like my finger, she didn't even respond. Well, so. If our listeners want to chime in on their favorite Bond girls, we'll take your suggestions now, 816-235-2888, and our email address is up to date at kcur.org. Let's turn to Moonraker and uh, Jason, um, another Roger, Mill, Roger Moore film, and this may be the weirdest Bond film big, of them all. Big, big, bigger, biggest. This is the biggest Bond of all. This is Bond in outer space. This is Bond saving the world in the biggest way. This has the most money. It has amazing locations. It has an incredibly great John Barry score. It has a villain who is smug and completely well-oiled and perfect, and it's still a turkey of a Bond film because they pushed everything far. And while that worked great with special effects and locations, they also pushed comedy too far. It is the 1941 of the Bond series. They Mm -hmm. went for laughs any way they could get them. And aside from some really great sequences, um, there's a sequence with two hunting dogs chasing a woman in the woods. There's a sequence with Bond and a a gravity trainer uh, that they play seriously. These are the most successful sequences in the film. And then it just flies off the tracks. But it does so with such just huge money and and a, this this beautiful John Barry score, which frankly makes the movie a half star better than it should, that you don't really mind. And it's it, they, it followed hard on the heels of Star Wars. They were actually going to do um, what was it? For your eyes only was going to be next. Broccoli saw Star Wars and said, "Okay, we're going to do Boonraker next." And it it's it's a huge film. Well, the big deal about this film was the uh, role of Lois Childs uh, trying to elevate the image of women in this film right. through her character. The, yeah. The problem is there's no charisma. Right? Card- cardboard can't yeah. elevate an image. She is the flattest yes. possible, dullest delivery. And the thing is, she was in retirement and happened to sit next to like. Harry Saltzman on a plane or something, or Lewis Gilbert, and they were, he said, oh, well, let's cast you in the new film. Big mistake. She is just a complete icebox in terms of charisma. Hmm. And, okay, great, she's an astronaut, and, yes, she helps Bond a great deal by flying a space shuttle and all this other great stuff, but at the same time, she's just, who cares? She's so boring. At this point, uh, this is the in the middle film of the seven that Roger Moore made in the Bond series. And again, he never really was quite accepted to the extent that Sean Connery was, right? Well, not not with the people who grew up with Connery, but this film and the previous one, The Spy Who Loved Me, defined Moore for a new generation. He uh, he was he was all about gadgets. He was if he fought, it was sort of a, a kooky, gentlemanly kickboxing kind of thing that he did. Um, this film is loaded to the gills with gadgets. It has Jaws. The the seven foot two wild E coyote of the series, who was menacing in The Spy Who Loved Me and who is now back as, as, as farce. He was scary. He was scary in The Spy Who Loved Me. He was scary in one scene here where he menaces Bond's female assistant at a, at a carnival in, in Rio. Um, but the locations in this are beautiful. Ken Adam, the, the longtime 
designer of the series, created this incredibly amazing space station set and this control room, like a, a mission control style room in a Mayan pyramid. And it's one of the neatest things you've ever seen in your mm-hmm. life. And it's, you know what? I, I, I love the movie. It, I, I admit it's a turkey. No double O secret agent belongs in outer space. <laughs> there, there's a lot wrong with it, including uh, a sequence in Venice. It's better left unmentioned. But it's 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 fun. It, it's really, really fun. What clip are we going to hear here? We're going to listen to one of the best clips of all time. Michelle Lonsdale, or Michael Lonsdale, if you anglicize his name, plays Drax, who is the film's villain. And this is him confronting 007 and Dr. Goodhead aboard his space station after they are discovered trying to sabotage things. This is James Bond from Moonraker. James Bond. You appear with the tedious inevitability of an unloved season. I didn't think there were any seasons in space. As far as you're concerned, only winter. And the treacherous Dr. Goodhead. Despite your efforts, my finely wrought dream approaches its fulfillment. Your dream, whatever sort of nightmare it is, has no chance, Drax. (laughs) You think not? We shall see. We're coming up to second launch position. Launch globe number two. No doubt you have realized the splendor of my conception. First, a necklace of death about the Earth. 50 globes, each releasing its nerve gas over a designated area, each capable of killing 100 million people. The human race, as you know it, will cease to exist. That's James Bond from Moonraker, and we're talking today and up to date about the James Bond film series and the best James Bond films of all time. Again, our number here, 816-235-2888, and our email address is up to date at kcur.org. Kelly from Overland Park, good morning. You there, Kelly? Uh, let's go to Steve from Kansas City, Missouri. Hello, Steve. Good morning. I first, I just want to mention right quick that I gave up my lunch hour to listen to this. Oh, great. I'm glad you did. Um, okay, yeah. Um, I'm a huge James Bond fan, and I mentioned to the, the, on the, on the, was the producer that answered the phone, the screener, um, I read in a book about Tarzan that Sean Connery was in the middle of a trilogy of Tarzan pictures when he got tapped for uh, Dr. No. And he sent the, uh, I read the memo that he sent to the Tarzan producer saying, uh, I probably won't be able to make the second movie because I'm doing a little spy film that probably won't do anything, but I'm sure I'll be back for the third picture. And then that little spy film was out, you know. Hmm. There you have um, it. And I wanted to mention, I remember watching some syndicated late night uh, Entertainment Tonight kind of show back 15 years or so ago, and they mentioned they had gotten Roger Moore back out of retirement to do a picture with Sherry Belafonte called Fire, Ice, and Diamonds, which apparently was so bad, it's not even gone to video. But as I understand it, the script was resurrected for the Die Another Day with uh, Brosnan and uh, Halle Berry. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it or not, or what the status of it. Let's get a comment here in the studio, Jason. Uh, my comment is no comment. You're yeah. pointing at me while I'm shaking my head. I have no, no clue idea. what that I is. Okay. I doubt it. I Let's move on here. Uh, let's turn to another film here, uh, Octopussy, uh, with a title that can make strong men blush, Jason. Now, Octopussy, to me, is, is, has all the, all the more elements perfectly combined. Mitch thinks it's perfectly combined into crap. 
Uh, I don't mm. think it's that bad. Uh, I will admit, and, and Mitch and I have discussed this, that John Glenn, the series, the director at this point, is completely leaden. He is completely, he's like a dialysis machine. You run style through him and nothing comes out. Um, but I think I, I think it has a great villain. Um, I, I like the plot, as convoluted as it is. I like the knife-throwing uh, kind of short guys. Uh, and I think it has a sensational climax. It, it features a car chase Bond going to a circus where a, a nuclear weapon is stored uh, at the that. base of a cannon uh, in the circus. It's going to shoot the human cannonball on the U.S. Air Force Base. The, the premise is a Russian general has planted it. It will go off, look like a U.S. accident. Weapons will be pulled out of Europe and the Soviets can invade. And mm-hmm. more in, in a clown suit is being restrained by MPs. And there's a lot of tension, which is rare at this point in the series. Tension didn't really exist. It's not like him on the table with the laser crawling toward his groin on Goldfinger anymore. There, there wasn't much tension. And this scene actually succeeded in ratcheting some up. I think it's a good climax for what I consider to be just the, the most perfect combination of all the Roger Moore elements into crap, Mitch would say. <laughs> We're going to hear a clip here, Jason. What is it? Now, this is a great scene. This is one of the better scenes in the film. Bond, as we know, gambles often against his adversaries before there's some sort of huge confrontation. In this scene, we have him playing backgammon against Kamal Khan, who has been using loaded dice to beat this other player just completely hapless. Bond kind of suspects that something is going on, and he steps in to, uh, to take on Kamal Khan over a backgammon board. This is from Octopussy. Well, I would have taken that double myself. Then uh, why don't you take over the Major's position? Uh, Mr. Bond. James Bond. Thank you, I'd be delighted. 100,000 rupees, then. Double six. It was not such a good double to accept after all, was it? Double. Of course. You can only win with a double six. The stake is 200,000 rupees. Play, Mr. Bond. You need a great deal of luck to get out of this. Oh, luck? Well, then I shall use player's privilege and use your lucky dice. It's all in the wrist. Double sixes. Fancy that. 200,000 rupees. That's a great scene. Great scene. Just like Goldfinger, he out-cheats the villain. Mitch, let's uh, move to 1987 and Living Daylights, the first appearance by Timothy Dalton as James Bond. How did he work out? Well, as we said before, you know, he, he, he... made two films that were financially the weakest in the series, which didn't help him. But he was a terrific James Bond. He he went back to the books. He played Bond as being human, conflicted, frustrated, and 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 a guy who who is ambivalent about his job to kill people. And he's a one woman Bond. Yeah, yeah. Again, culture. You know, the the I, I think clearly because of the because of the 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 age AIDS, epidemic, yeah. he the producers decided uh, we're going to. Get rid of the three girls for every James Bond in every movie, and and bring him in a, a more of a one-on-one relationship, which, because the movie's not really about that, I don't think it particularly affects the movie one way or the other. Um, but uh, he took the role over. He brought a real fierceness to it, and um, it would lead into what would be Pierce Brosnan's, you know, taking over the role in the James Bond we know today. Uh, what kind of clip are we going to hear here? Uh, this is a scene where he interrogates uh, John Rice Davies, who's a Russian spy. 
Okay, let's listen General. to it. Get down on your knees. Put your hands behind your back. You are professional. You do not kill without reason. Two of our men are dead. Koskov's named you. Now why should I disobey my orders? I am in the dark as much as you are. It is a question of trust. Who do you believe? Koskov? Or me? If I trusted Koskov, we wouldn't be talking. But as long as you're alive, we'll never know what he's up to. And I must die. That's from Living Daylights and Timothy Dalton's first appearance as Bond. We have an email here from Chuck with an interesting question. He writes, it seems to me that Brosnan, Pierce Brosnan, had a couple of more Bonds in him. Died another day, did the largest box office gross of all the Bond movies. Why tinker with something that was working? Producers, I believe, said he was too old, yeah. which is fairly bizarre since Moore carried it on until he was like in his early hundreds. In this youth-obsessed Hollywood, there was talk of making James Bond even younger. They were talking about Colin Farrell. They were talking about totally reinventing the character. And Daniel Craig's fairly young, too. They want, they're going for the youth market. They think by going with a younger James Bond, they're going to, to get a bigger audience. Well, listen, thank you both for being here. Glad to have you. Always a good show when you're here. Great to be here, Neil thank Connery. You. <laughs> That's Mitch Bryan, who's a fairway screenwriter, and Jason Heck, our longtime video expert here on Up to Date. And there you have it, uh, the first presentation of a DVD Guru's episode um, here on the Alien Minute feed. Uh, let us know what you think. Let us know if there's any changes you think we should make. Let us know if you liked it. Let us know if you didn't like it. Whatever you want to let us know. Uh, give us some feedback over on the Alien Minute Facebook page or on Twitter at Alien Minute Pod. Um, just a little information about the future. Uh, we're doing these episodes probably, uh, recording some bonus episodes, thinking about other podcast ideas in general. I think uh, the bonus episodes in the future will probably throw one on the feed and then uh, put the rest behind a paywall on Patreon. I'm not sure if that's something you guys would be interested in, but I think I'm going to do it anyway and, and see how it goes. Um, the idea there is uh, just one payment of $4 a month uh, that will get you any uh, full access to anything that we're doing over here. So that'll be bonus episodes and possibly some trial runs on some new podcast ideas I'm thinking I might do. I don't know. But just let us know. I, I would like to do a Patreon. I need a little help keeping the lights on over here at Alien Minute, keeping the feed up and running. So uh, if in the meantime you want to help me with that, you can come over to our homepage at our website, alienminute.com, and go to the purple pig in the upper left corner and throw in a few bucks in the digital tip jar. That would be very helpful as well. Okay, well, thanks for joining us today uh, to listen to this first presentation of DVD Gurus on the Alien Minute. Uh, we will be back soon, maybe with another episode. We got a few uh, in the hopper. So come back and see us for those. Thanks a lot. Bye.